I think this particular section is, mm, how do I, you've probably heard me say possibly the most important words that you'll ever hear. Uh, I think in a way for our generation, for the world that we, we, we live in today, possibly the most important words that we might hear in terms of how to go therefore and live. We live in an age which is, which is so consumed with comparison, with having and desire to have, and the anxiety and fear of not having. And the reality is that that experience, it's not new. Uh, and, and in actual fact, the idea kind of flows through the whole of the human story. Some of you will probably know of the story. It was written 800 BC. It's the fable uh, of King Midas. King Midas supposedly was very rich, um, but one day was approached by the god Dionysus. And therein we know it's a fable. <laughs> and, and Dionysus says to Midas, whatever you want, I'll grant you. And he says, just let anything that I touch turn to gold. And, and that's really, it's kind of that idea has just flown into our thinking. It's become almost a catchphrase. Everything he touched it turns to gold. And Midas is granted that gift. And everything he touches turns to gold. And then he goes back home. And apparently he hugs his daughter, who instantly turns to gold. A solid, lifeless statue of gold. And of course, in the fable, Dionysus is devastated, finds Dionysus and pleads that it might be reversed. He's told to go and wash his hands in the Pactolus River. And so the story goes, when he washes his hands, gold flows out of his fingers and he goes back home, and as he touches his daughter, the spell is reversed. And the story goes on to say that having had that moment in his life where he could have had everything, he realized that actually it was nothing, and he became a great philanthropist. But that, that very idea, which was written 800 years before Jesus, that same idea, that same storyline flows through so much of our literature, so much of our thinking, so much of our contemporary communication, and so much of our media attention. Greed-based stories. And how greed becomes, if you like, the, the very curse that is the opposite of the hope that it's supposed to bring us. Rapunzel, spin me gold. A Christmas carol. Even in November 22, a eight-minute fashion film that's an award-winning fashion film called Miho plays exactly the same storyline. The idea that touching brings incredible wealth and yet at the same time becomes a curse. This particular verse, these particular few verses that we're looking at this afternoon are so, seem so strange in the context of what we've been going through as Jesus is teaching 
this Sermon on the Mount, as it's called. Remember that he's gathered people around him and he starts to teach. And we read that actually he's teaching his disciples, but people start to listen in. And they're hearing alongside what Jesus is teaching them. And he's giving them lessons for life in the light of their faith. That, that's, the, that's the core of the idea of the Sermon on the Mount. Hold on to this faith. If you profess this faith, if you believe this, therefore the impact that it has is that you will live in a particular way. What we've just shared, and that brilliant, insightful quote by Tim Keller is so pertinent. We think that religion, or we think that faith actually, is, is all about doing the things that are necessary to be accepted. And communion tells us, it reminds us, it is completely the opposite to that. We are accepted through Jesus if we believe. Maybe you're just thinking about this Christian faith. Maybe you're looking forward and saying, I know what I'm like as a person. I know my own inconsistencies. I know the things that I, I struggle with even now. And I look forward, I kind of project my life forward. And I say, if I commit to this faith, I don't know whether I'll be able to sustain it. I don't know whether I'll be able to keep going. I don't know whether I'll continue to do the things that will make me acceptable. The Christian faith is great news because it's the opposite of that. Our fears about being consistent, our fears about sustaining, are solved by the work of Jesus. We are accepted because of him and therefore, we seek to live differently. And our lives are lives of desired, desiring faithfulness as opposed to faithfulness so that we will be accepted. And yet this verse, these few verses, and we're going to look first at verse 7 and 8, these few verses kind of jump in and they speak about something which, which tantalizes our Christian ears. I want to suggest that they kind of talk almost like the Bible's Aladdin's lamp. That, that's the way I think it sounds. You know the story of Aladdin, another kind of story in the same vein of the wishes being granted. You rub the lamp and you've got the genie pops out and you've got three times the genie will pop out and he's going to grant your wish every time. How many of you, when you were little, said... The first wish I'll ask for is that every wish I ask for will come true in the future. And I'll, I'll trump the genie. <laughs> three wishes. This sounds like the Bible's three wishes genie lamp. If I ask, Jesus says, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks... The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open to you. It sounds, it sounds like suddenly the Christian faith can be the payback machine that I've been hoping for in life. I've had this life where 
I'm trying to work out how to attain, how to gain, how to receive, how to achieve. And now this voice, this ver these verses pop up in the middle of Jesus' teaching, and it says, oh, by the way, if you ask, you'll get. Boom. This is great news. The tragedy is, the tragedy is that that very idea has been taken by many in the Christian faith, supposedly, and, and simplistically applied and said, said, that's what it means. And let me encourage you, if you are early in your faith, if you are thinking about the Christian faith, even if you've been walking that, a long journey and you come across this and you feel as if, as if this is the hope for the challenge that you face, let me encourage you, do not read it. Do not read it like that. Because our temporary mindset will be devastated at the outcome if we believe that we simply have to ask and then it's going to happen. Because the... The answer to that is when it doesn't happen, what's, what does it say about our faith? That's the problem, isn't it? If Jesus says, ask and you'll receive, and we commit ourselves to faithful prayer so that we will receive a blessing from God, and those looking on will see the goodness of God in our lives, in the comfort and security that we have received, and we, we kind of spiritualize that security and say, this will be a great witness about how good God is. And we pray faithfully, and we're still struggling further down the line. There's one of two things. If we treat these verses like that, either God's not faithful, because he said, ask and you'll receive, or we're not faithful. It's one of the two, if we think about these verses in this way. And so I, I really want to push into, how do we come to this, and how do we therefore use these verses and apply them to our lives day by day, so that we are redeemed, so that we have that burden lifted from us, of feeling as though we've found the Bible's ticket machine. The first thing is, we need to understand the danger of stripping verses out of their context. That's one of the first things. Whenever you come to the Bible and you read certain verses, and I think it's possibly, it's possibly joined if you've been in the Christian journey for maybe since you were very little, you might have been, you might have been taught how to memorize verses. And that's a great thing. It's a great thing to be able to memorize verses. I wish I could. I simply cannot memorize verses. Can't do it. Some people can, and I envy you if you're able to do that. Uh, and if you can memorize verses, fantastic. That's great. But the danger is that when we memorize verses, unless we memorize the whole of the chapter and the book and the context of the story of the life of Jesus, we are in danger of plucking out those verses and we say, okay, I remember that. How does it fit into everything else? Jesus is sat on a hillside 
speaking to his disciples, and he has already spoken to them about certain things. He's spoken to them about this dramatic change in the relationship that they might have with God, Yahweh. And he said, when you, when you pray, you say, Father. That's, a, that's revolutionary, that you might have that relationship with God. And he opens out to them this whole idea of relying on God in prayer. Then he says to them, and by the way, while you are relying on God, Store up treasures in heaven. Don't store up treasures on earth. Store up treasures in heaven. And then he says to them, let go of your reliance on the things of this world just a little bit every now and then by fasting. By by reminding yourself that you can rely on this God. And then he says to them, don't worry. Because I know that you are absolutely crowded in with worries about the temporary things of the, of the life that you live. He says, don't worry. And, that, and then don't judge each other. Th- that's the journey that we've been through. And now we come to this bit where Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Don't disconnect that from Jesus saying, store up treasures in heaven. He's, he's saying, think about the asking in a way which is connected to what I've already said. It's all part of this one, this one message that Jesus is bringing them. As you think about that idea, I hope what's going on is it's making sense that when you take certain bits of what Jesus says, it's, it's, it's always, all the gospel writers do this, they write it in ways which is connected to other things around it. And then even when it's disconnected from other things, what they're saying is, take this life of Jesus as a whole. One of the great problems I think we have in society today is that we tend to take little uh, moments of speech, of what somebody says, and then we load that one thing that has been said with all sorts of problematic response and we say when they say that one thing therefore they are xyz and that's and that that's the person that they are and yet the reality is when we take the whole of a life we see that it can be it can be it can be completely opposed to what they said what does that generally mean that doesn't mean that we can't at times say wrong things What it generally means is that we've misinterpreted what has been said over here in an instance and we need to take it in the whole context of a life. We need to do that way more with Jesus. We need to take the whole of Jesus' life. We need to take everything that he says. And when we see something said over here which seems bit strange we say well where does that fit in with the whole of his life and then where does the life of Jesus fit in with the whole of the story of how God deals with us in the world how does this fit in with the way that God is revealing himself and building up through the history of the world our salvation story when we do that when we stop 
stripping little verses out of context, we start to build up a bigger and more consistent picture. What does that mean for our lives? Let me suggest a few things. It is very easy in our lives as believers to take a particular instance, a particular period of our life, and to strip that little bit out of context and to make judgments on how God perceives us in a short period of our life and we forget about the whole of our lives. You've heard me recount this story before. He was one of the early church fathers. His name was Polycarp. And he was being executed for his faith in Jesus. It would be really, really easy for him at that moment to elevate those few days or hours and to make an assessment on his relationship with God because of that particular time as he's oppressed, as he sees death coming. And yet what he actually does is he reflects back on the whole of his life and he says right the way through my life, he has been faithful to me. The God that I trust in, the God that I believe in, has been faithful to me as I look back. And therefore I'll look back and shape this moment in the context of God's faithfulness rather than this brief moment questioning all of God's faithfulness. You know when you wake up in the morning and you've got that horrible sinking feeling because of what you know is facing you in that day. And you pray. And it seems as though the ceiling is let. Like you've got no connection. Like you've got no relationship. It is so easy for us to elevate that moment and, and to, to decide on our status and relationship with God because of that moment. And yet what we see is we look back and we say he's been faithful to me throughout this period of time. I'm going to lean into that rather than how I feel right now. As we, as we are in danger of stripping particular bits of the Bible out of the fuller context, it's really easy to strip little bits of our life out of their fuller context. So the first thing is, let's not strip it out of the context. But the second is, let's put it back in the context. So Jesus says, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. Now he's... Unto you, that's a bit of AV slipping in there. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 9, we read this. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven good gifts, give good gifts to those who ask him? It's a bit of a strange kind of statement that he's making there, isn't it? I think, as I was pondering on this, I thought, is it easier maybe to 
reverse the metaphor to understand what Jesus is actually saying. Because Jesus is saying, if you ask for a good thing, would the opposite be given? Let's reverse the metaphor and say, if you're hungry and ask your father for a stone, what would he give you? Because that speaks on the nature of God. And I think in a way, almost reversing it, helps us to see the starkness of what Jesus is saying. Switch it round the other way. If you're hungry and you ask for a stone, what is your father going to give you? He's going to give you bread. <laughs> Why? Because that's the nature of your father. He's going to give you what is good for you in spite of what you ask for. If you're hungry again, I guess, and you ask for a snake, he's going to give you a fish. And if you think about the idea of bread and fish in the life of Jesus, this particular little phrase that he brings in here is, is just so powerful and emblematic. On another occasion, Jesus satisfies the need of 5,000 people with bread and fish. And again, he provides in this metaphor the idea of bread and fish. It's this, this constant metaphor that Jesus brings back on the, as after he's risen again, what does he do? He feeds his disciples fish. Why? Because, because people get it. They're around Lake Galilee. They understand the storyline. They know how it works. Here's Jesus saying this. The kind of father that you've got in heaven is the kind of father that will give you good things. He will give you good things in spite of what you ask for. He's not dependent on what you ask for, for good things to be poured out. Why? Because that's the nature of God. How do we know that? How can we see that? How can we be sure that that's what Jesus is saying? I think we can see it in three ways. Three quick parables. Jesus comes to speak to a, a room full of people. And there's a man who's crippled, detained on a bed. And his friends break open the roof and drop him down in front of Jesus. It is obvious that what he needs is to walk. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. The ask is, let me walk. And the given is forgiveness. Two people who are outside of the community of Jesus. One is a Roman centurion sends to Jesus, goes to Jesus, seeks him, seeks him out because his servant is ill. He seeks him out, finds him, asks Jesus, doesn't even need, you don't need to come to my house, but if, if you could just intervene. He seeks him out in faith, and Jesus says, in spite of the fact that you're outside of 
the community. You're not a Jew. In spite of that, I've never seen such faith. And he commends his faith. He doesn't commend his seeking. He commends his faith. He says his faith is the great thing. Then another woman comes to Jesus. Knocks on the door, metaphorically. Comes to Jesus and says, I've got a daughter who is demon-possessed. She's not allowed to come to Jesus. She's scorned because she's a Canaanite. And Jesus even says to her, would, would dogs, eat, would, would you eat from the master's table? And she turns around and says, I know him from the outside and even dogs eat the crumbs. It's kind of like she's metaphorically knocking on the door and Jesus says, it's your faith that has healed your daughter. See the picture that Jesus is filling in his life that speaks into these few verses. I'll give you the good things for you in spite of what you ask for, in spite of what you seek, in spite of how you feel as though the knocking is silent. I will be there. In spite of the times when you're seeking me and I seem so distant, I'm there. In spite of the times when you are asking and it doesn't seem as what you think is good is being received, you are receiving what is good. And we know this. We know, in fact, that verses uh, 9 to 11 make sense of verse 7 and 8. It kind of clarifies what Jesus means by ask, seek, knock. It says, your Father will give you good things. Because that's his nature. So in everything, do to others as uh, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. When we ask, when we seek in a very temporary, materialistic way, here's the economic reality of this world. The economic reality of this world is that every time we progress in wealth, it is at the cost of someone else. And this verse speaks into that because it says, ask in a way that upholds the other one. Ask in a way which, which exalts those around you. It's what Jesus says. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, wow, I think more and more, the more I come to it, the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that the Gethsemane moment and the cross are one and the same and speak powerfully into this. Because how can we, Jesus says in these verses, how can you as evil ones, aren't you evil? You'll do good for your kids. And here's the thing. Jesus, the good one, asked his father that a cup be taken from him. And his father said no. Why? Because it was a good thing. Jesus sought his companions around him and they slept and betrayed him. He sought 
and there was nothing. He knocked at the door of heaven on the cross. And as he knocked on the door of heaven, his only response is to say, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the only way that we have the confidence that says that when we ask, seek, and knock for those good things that our Father will give us, the only way that we can know that he will do that is because Jesus received the opposite. He asked, he sought, and he knocked. And to everyone, the answer was no, for our sake. I'm going to close with this, because this sounds like, okay, we, we, just, we just forget about riches. John Bunyan wrote a brilliant story called The Pilgrim's Progress. He goes to the interpreter's house, and in the interpreter's house, there's two, these two little boys, Passion and Patience. And Passion and Patience are one screaming, shouting for, I want my toys, I want my wealth, I want my stuff now. I want it now. And the governess comes in and gives to Passion all that he wants. And Christian and the interpreter watch as it unfolds. And all of those things that he got kind of decay and fall apart and disappear and are broken. And having scorned patience, he's left with nothing. Christian turns to the interpreter and he says this. What does this mean? And the interpreter says this. Patience understands that the riches of God are limitless and worth waiting for. So when we ask, may we ask, Father, may I store up treasures in heaven because I know that the riches that I will receive will be from your storehouse, which is unendingly limitless and will, will far exceed any wealth that I might so temporarily receive now. You see, seeking riches is written into us. We're made to have riches poured out on us. But the riches that we seek are from a Father who is limitless and pours out good gifts on His children for all of eternity. And in that, we have our hope. 